Hello and welcome, friends, family, and enemies alike, to episode 52 of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. Today, we get to explore more of the Russia-Austria-Prussia conflict against France. And not only that, but it is also Winnie the Pooh's birthday today at the time of this recording. I checked my phone, it notified me, and then I checked the internet, so it must be correct. So, if you ever want to listen to some Winnie the Pooh adventures in Hundred Acre Wood, I'm sorry, you're going to have to take it up with Walter P. I just made that up. Disney. Because he has got a tight grip on the copyrights licensing for Winnie the Pooh. Instead, we continue to dig deeper. We continue to grab more shovels into this deep political conflict, which Prince Andrew has been caught into the middle of up to this point when he learns of the true deception of Russia in their alliance with Austria. So that is where we've left off. Without further ado, let us begin. Chapter 11 Next day he, Prince Andrew, woke late. Recalling his recent impressions, the first thought that came into his mind was that today he had to be presented to the Emperor Francis. He remembered the Minister of War, the polite Austrian adjutant, Bilibin, and last night's conversation. Having dressed for his attendance at court in full parade uniform, which he had not worn for a long time, he went into Bilibin's study, fresh, animated, and handsome, with his hand bandaged. In the study were four gentlemen of the diplomatic corps, with Prince Hippolyte Kurrigan, who was a secretary to the embassy. Bokonsky was already acquainted. Bilibin introduced him to the others. The gentlemen assembled at Bilibin's were young, wealthy, gay society men, who, here, as in Vienna, formed a special set which Bilibin, their leader, called Les Notres, or Ours. This set, consisting almost exclusively of diplomats, evidently had its own interests, which had nothing to do with war or politics, but related it to high society, to certain women, and to the official side of the service. These gentlemen received Prince Andrew as one of themselves, an honor they did not extend to many. From politeness and to start conversation, they asked him a few questions about the army and the battle. And then the talk went off into merry jests and gossip. But the best of it was, said one, telling of the misfortune of a fellow diplomat, that the Chancellor told him flatly that his appointment to London was a promotion and that he was so to regard it. Can you fancy the figure he cut? But the worst of it, gentlemen, I'm giving Kurrigan away to you, is that the man suffers and this Don Juan, wicked fellow, is taking advantage of it. Prince Hippolyte was lolling in a lounge chair with his legs over his arms. He began to laugh. Tell me about that, 
he said. Oh, you Don Juan, you serpent, cried several voices. You, Balkonsky, don't know, said Bilibin, turning to Prince Andrew, that all the atrocities of the French army, I nearly said of the Russian army, are nothing compared to what this man has been doing among the women. Women is a man's companion, announced Prince Hippolyt, and began looking through a lorgnette at his elevated legs. Bilibin and the rest of ours burst out laughing in Hippolyte's face, and Prince Andrew saw that Hippolyte, of whom he had to admit he had almost been jealous on his wife's account, was the butt of this set. Oh, I must give you a treat, Bilibin whispered to Bolkonsky. Kurrigan is exquisite when he discusses politics. You should see his gravity. He sat down beside Hippolyte, and, wrinkling his forehead, began talking about politics. Prince Andrew and the others gathered round these two. The Berlin cabinet cannot express a feeling of alliance, began Hippolyte, gazing round with importance at the others, without expressing, as in its last note, you understand. Besides, unless His Majesty the Emperor derogates from the principle of our alliance... Wait, I have not finished, <laughs> he said to Prince Andrew, seizing him by the arm. I believe that intervention will be stronger than non-intervention. And, he paused, finally one cannot impute the non-receipt of our dispatch of November the 18th. That is how it will end. And he released Bolkonsky's arm to indicate that he had now quite finished. Demosthenes, I know thee by thy pebble, thou secretest in thy golden mouth, said Bilibin, and the mop of hair on his head moved with satisfaction. Everybody laughed, and Hippolyte louder than anyone. He was evidently distressed and breathed painfully, but could not restrain the wild laughter that convulsed his usually impassive features. Well now, gentlemen, said Bilibin, Bukonsky is my guest in this house, and in Brun itself. I want to entertain him as far as I can, with all the pleasures of life here. If we were in Vienna, it would be easy. But here, in this wretched Moravian hole, it is more difficult, and I beg you all to help me. Brun's attractions must be shown him. You can undertake the theater, I society, and you, Hippolyte, of course, the women. We must let him see Amelie. She's exquisite, said one of ours, kissing his fingertips. In general, we must turn this bloodthirsty soldier to more humane interests, said Bilibin. I shall scarcely be able to avail myself of your hospitality, gentlemen. It is already time for me to go, replied Prince Andrew, looking at his watch. Where to? To the Emperor. Oh, oh, oh! Well, 
Bukonski, Prince, come back early tomorrow to dinner, cried several voices. We'll take you in hand. When speaking to the emperor, try as far as you can to praise the way that provisions are supplied and the routes indicated, said Bilibin, accompanying him to the hall. I should like to speak well of him, but as far as I know, the facts, I can't, replied Bolkonsky, smiling. Well, talk as much as you can, anyway. He has a passion for giving audiences, but he does not like talking himself and can't do it, as you will see. End of chapter 11. Chapter 12. At the levee, Prince Andrew stood among the Austrian officers as he had been told to do, and the Emperor Francis merely looked fixedly into his face and just nodded to him with his long head. But after it was over, the adjutant he had seen the previous day ceremoniously informed Bolkonsky that the Emperor desired to give him an audience. The Emperor Francis received him standing in the middle of the room. Before the conversation began, Prince Andrew was struck by the fact that the Emperor seemed confused and blushed, as if not knowing what to say. Tell me, when did the battle begin? he asked hurriedly. Prince Andrew replied, then followed other questions, just as simple. Was Kututsov well, when he had left Krems? And so on. The, the Emperor spoke as if his sole aim were to put a given number of questions. The answers to these questions, as was only too evident, did not interest him. At what o'clock did the battle begin? asked the Emperor. I cannot inform your majesty at what o'clock the battle began at the front, but at Dorenstein, where I was, our attack began after five in the afternoon, replied Bokonsky, growing more animated and expecting that he would have a chance to give a reliable account, which he had ready in his mind, of all he knew and had seen. But the Emperor smiled and interrupted him. How many miles? From where to where, your majesty? From Dorenstein to Krems. Three and a half miles, your majesty. The French have abandoned the left bank. According to the scouts, the last of them crossed on rafts during the night. Is there sufficient forage in Krems? Forage has not been supplied to the extent... The emperor interrupted him. At what o'clock was General Schmidt killed? At seven o'clock, I believe. At seven o'clock? It's very sad. Very sad. The emperor thanked Prince Andrew and bowed. Prince Andrew withdrew and was immediately surrounded by courtiers on all sides. Everywhere he saw friendly looks and heard friendly words. Yesterday's adjutant reproached him for not having stayed at the palace and offered him his own house. The Minister of War came up and congratulated him on the Maria Theresa Order of the Third Grade, which the Emperor was conferring on him. The Empress Chamberlain invited him to see Her Majesty. The Archduchess also wished to see him. He did not know whom to answer, and for a few seconds collected his thoughts. Then the Russian ambassador took him by the shoulder, led him to the window, and began to talk to him. 
Contrary to Bilibin's forecast, the news he had brought was joyfully received. A thanksgiving service was arranged. Kututsov was awarded the Grand Cross of Maria Theresa, and the whole army received rewards. Bukonsky was invited everywhere and had to spend the whole morning calling on the principal Austrian dignitaries. Between four and five in the afternoon, having made all his calls, he was returning to Bilibin's house, thinking out a letter to his father about the battle and his visit to Brunn. At the door, he found a vehicle half full of luggage. Franz, Bilibin's man, was dragging a portmanteau with some difficulty out the front door. Before returning to Bilibin's, Prince Andrew had gone to a bookshop to provide himself with some books for the campaign, and had spent some time in the shop. What is it? he asked. Ugh, your excellency, said Franz, with difficulty rolling the portmanteau into the vehicle. We are to move on still farther. The scoundrel is again at our heels. Huh? What? asked Prince Andrew. Bilibin came out to meet him. His usually calm face showed excitement. There now, confess that this is delightful, said he. This affair of the Tabor Bridge at Vienna. They've crossed without striking a blow. Prince Andrew could not understand. But where do you come from not to know what every coachman in the town already knows? I come from the Archduchess. I heard nothing there. And you did not see that everybody's packing up? I did not. What is it all about? inquired Prince Andrew impatiently. What's it all about? Why, the French have crossed the bridge that Auersburg was defending. And the bridge was not blown up. So Murat is now rushing along the road to Brunn and will be here in a day or two. What? Here? But why did they not blow up the bridge if it was mined? That is what I ask you. No one, not even Bonaparte, knows why. Bokonsky shrugged his shoulders. But if the bridge is crossed, it means that the army too is lost. It will be cut off, said he. That's just it, answered Bilibin. Listen, the French entered Vienna as I told you. Very well. Next day, which was yesterday, those gentlemen, the marshals, Murat, Lanay, and Belliard, mount and ride to the bridge. Observe that all three are Gascons. Gentlemen, says one of them, you know the Tabor Bridge is mined and doubly mined, and that there are menacing fortifications at its head, and an army of 15,000 men has been ordered to blow up the bridge and not let us cross. But it will please our sovereign, the Emperor Napoleon, if we take this bridge. So let us three go and take it. Yes, let's, say the others. And off they go and take the bridge, cross it. And now, with their whole army on this side of the Danube, marching on us, you and your lines of communication. Stop jesting, said Prince Andrew, sadly and seriously. The news grieved him, and yet he was pleased. As soon as he learned that the Russian army was in such a hopeless situation, it occurred to him that it was he 
who was destined to lead it out of this position. That here was the Toulon that would lift him from the ranks of obscure officers and offer him the first step to fame. Listening to Bilibin, he was already imagining how, on reaching the army, he would give an opinion at the war council, which would be the only one that could save the army, and how he alone would be entrusted with the executing of the plan. Stop this jesting, he said. I'm not jesting, Bilibin went on. Nothing is truer or sadder. These gentlemen ride onto the bridge alone and wave white handkerchiefs. They assure the officer on duty that they, the marshals, are on their way to negotiate with Prince Auersberg. He lets them enter the bridgehead. They spin him a thousand Gasconides, saying that the war is over, that the Emperor Francis is arranging a meeting with Bonaparte, that they desire to see Prince Auersberg, and so on. The officer sends for Auersberg. These gentlemen embrace the officers, crack jokes, sit on the cannon, and meanwhile, a French battalion gets to the bridge unobserved, flings the bags of incendiary material into the water, and approaches the bridgehead. At length appears the lieutenant general, our dear Prince Auersberg von Maturn himself. Dearest foe, flower of the Austrian army, hero of the Turkish wars, hostilities are ended. We can shake one another's hand. The Emperor Napoleon burns with impatience to make Prince Auersberg's acquaintance. In a word, those gentlemen, Gaskins indeed, so bewildered him with fine words, and he is so flattered by his rapidly established intimacy with the French marshals, and so dazzled by the sight of Marat's mantle and ostrich plumes, that their fire gets into his eyes, and he forgets that he ought to be firing on the enemy. In spite of the animation of his speech, Bilibin did not forget to pause after this mot to give time for its due appreciation. The French battalion rushes to the bridgehead, spikes the guns, and the bridge is taken. But what is best of all, he went on, his excitement subsiding under the delightful interest of his own story, is that the sergeant in charge of the cannon, which was about to give the signal to fire the mines and blow up the bridge, this sergeant, seeing that the French troops were running onto the bridge, was about to fire. But Lanay stayed his hand. The sergeant, who is evidently wiser than his general, goes up to Auersberg and says, Prince, you are being deceived. Here are the French. Marat, seeing that all is lost if the sergeant is allowed to speak, turns to Auersberg with feigned astonishment. He is a true Gaskin and says, I don't recognize the world-famous Austrian discipline if you allow a subordinate to address you like that. It was a stroke of genius. Prince Auersberg feels his dignity at stake and orders the sergeant to be arrested. Come, you must own that this affair of the table bridge is delightful. It is not exactly stupidity, nor rascality. It may be treachery, said Prince Andrew, vividly imagining the great 
overcoats, wounds, the smoke of gunpowder, the sounds of firing, and the glory that awaited him. Not that either. That puts the court in too bad a light, replied Bilibin. It's not treachery, nor rascality, nor stupidity. It is just as at Ulm. It is... It is... He seemed to be trying to find the right expression. It is... It is a bit of Mac. We are Macked, he concluded, feeling that he had produced a good epigram, a fresh one that would be repeated. His hitherto puckered brow became smooth as a sign of pleasure, and with a slight smile, he began to examine his nails. Where are you off to? he said suddenly to Prince Andrew, who had risen and was going toward his room. I am going away. Where to? To the army. But you meant to stay another two days. But now I am off at once. And Prince Andrew, after giving directions about his departure, went to his room. Do you know, mon cher, said Bilibin, following him, I've been thinking about you. Why are you going? And, in proof of the conclusiveness of his opinion, all the wrinkles vanished from his face. Prince Andrew looked inquiringly at him and gave no reply. Why are you going? I know you think it's your duty to gallop back to the army now that it is in danger. I understand that. Monsieur, it is heroism. Not at all, said Prince Andrew. But as you are a philosopher, be a consistent one. Look at the other side of the question, and you will see that your duty, on the contrary, is to take care of yourself. Leave it to those who are no longer fit for anything else. You have not been ordered to return, and have not been dismissed from here. Therefore, you can stay and go with us wherever our ill luck takes us. They say we are going to Olmutz, and Olmutz is a very decent town. You and I will travel comfortably in my calachet. Do stop joking, Bilibin, cried Belkonsky. I'm speaking sincerely as a friend. Consider, where and why are you going when you might remain here? You are faced by one of two things. And the skin over his left temple puckered. Either you will not reach your regiment before peace is concluded, or you will share defeat and disgrace with Katutsov's whole army. And Bilibin unwrinkled his temple, feeling that the dilemma was insoluble. I cannot argue about it, replied Prince Andrew coldly, but he thought, I am going to save the army. My dear fellow, you are a hero, said Bilibin. End of chapter 12. I think this is really at one of the heart matters that Tolstoy has been trying to to bring up to us since chapter one at Anna Pavlovna's soiree is that the Russian people are so blinded by their status and their gossip and their talking instead of actually doing anything about everything because all they care about is what's lining their pockets 
All they care about is their immense wealth and who inherits what. Perhaps, maybe, Pierre was just a straw man, a, a, a device that Tolstoy was trying to lay before us, before this war even started, to just show us how enraptured everybody is with their status. I mean, my goodness, brother and sister combined together forces to try to take Pierre's fortune away from him. They're so, they've put so much energy and investment in their wealth. And when it's stripped away from them, they don't know what to do. And here's the heart of the matter, because Prince Andrew wakes up knowing he has to give some sober news and, quite frankly, some, some victorious news to this emperor. He's just been warned about this whole, like, side political thing. And so he's trying to be d diplomatic and approach the situation appropriately. And so he's preparing himself for um, any backlash from the emperor. He's expecting people to be as involved in this war as he is. You, you saw the animation he had when he was starting to describe the battle he was in with General Schmidt. You know, just like, hey, let's all get in, you know, here. But this spell of delusion, because that's what it is, because you've got all these diplomats that he first meets before the emperor, are all deluded into thinking that high society, women, and the local gossip, and maybe even some of the finer points of politics, are more important than the men who are fighting in this war, the people who are sacrificing in it. They try to lure Prince Andrew into their gang, their gentlemen's club, the others club, whatever that means. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that's even a definitive, appropriate name for them, for they're trying to separate themselves from the people who are actually fighting in this war. And the spell goes all the way to the top. It's like somebody has waved a wand over the Russian people and status has become some amazing thing to pursue. Man, we're really starting to see it. Prince Andrew is walking through this and he's like, good God, man, there are people dying on the front. Our own people have been deceived by the French and you guys don't even give a care. We've given up our line even more. Austria was just the first step. France knows how caught up in ourselves we are here in Russia with our status, and they used it to, to their advantage. I mean, they took advantage of, of that dude's pride in his position to not listen to his subordinate about the plot and trickery that was taking place. France didn't have to do anything. All they had to do was appeal to the high society views that all Russian people feel. Uh, they just had to woo the main man, which is gross, absolutely gross. Because you know what? That man who was in charge, General Auersberg, got to his position largely because not for his military tact, although that probably had something to do with it. More so, he probably paid off the right people and had the proper title in front of his name to, to get that position. He didn't earn it. It was given to him. 
And this sergeant down below who recognizes the trickery had to work for what he, he got. And again, the French take advantage of that. So, man, Prince Andrew loved the guy because at least he has the sense enough to do the right thing. And yeah, you can tell he's got some pride, right? He's like, I'm going to have the best idea that's going to save this army. He, Although he's upset with what just happened, he's like, ooh, this is my chance to rise to fame. I think Prince Andrew is actually harnessing this plague of the higher class to his advantage. And he's using it appropriately. And so very interesting to see what's going to happen if he can actually back up his thoughts with action and be different than the rest of the nobility. Because Bilibin is trying to convince him not to go to battle. And so um, that just, yeah, I don't know another way to put it than just delusion. Spellstruck people. Thank you all so much for listening to another episode of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. And as they say in show business, that's all he wrote.